take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter chapter 5 if you have not done so already. And I said last week that, Lord willing, we would finish 1 Peter today, but um, it looks like we're going to have to finish it next week because there's so much good stuff in chapter 5, verses 12 through 14 that we need to spend one more week in it. And so you can come back next week. Um, If you want to know what verse 14 means, greet one another with a kiss of love. How in the world do we apply that? If you take the Bible literally, you should have kissed every person that you greeted here this morning. So, come back next week. I think it's, is it Memorial Day? Yeah, so you got to decide, do you want to skip town or do you want to find out if you're supposed to kiss other Christians when you show up to church? So, make your choice. And then don't be surprised if you show up, show up the next week and you get kissed by someone. So, you know. All right, First Peter chapter 5. And then, Lord willing, May 31st, we'll start Psalm 13, which is where we left off in the Psalms two years ago. So... Now, I just want to let you know that I know what the church of Jesus Christ desperately needs. I know what this church desperately needs. I know what disciples of Jesus desperately need. And what we need around here desperately is a real zombie apocalypse. That's what we need. A zombie apocalypse. Of course, I don't mean that literally, Of course, I do not want there to be a real zombie apocalypse. I don't want there to be an actual zombie apocalypse because I don't want to be eaten. I don't want to be eaten by anything, by a zombie, a cannibal, a lion, a tiger, a bear, an alligator, a shark, you name it, and I don't want to be eaten by it. But we could use a real zombie apocalypse in the church Stay with me and I'll explain why. We could use a few zombies walking around here to remind us of something. And the reason why we could use a real zombie apocalypse is because a real zombie apocalypse, if it occurred, would put us on guard. We'd be more aware of danger. We'd be more aware that we are in a war. We would be more aware that There is an enemy, the devil, and that that enemy wants to destroy us. He wants to devour us. He wants to eat us, if you will. Zombies would make us aware of what we often forget. It's like on the show, The Walking Dead. I don't know if you watch The Walking Dead. It's a TV show that tries to capture what life would be like if a zombie apocalypse actually occurred. What would life be like in a world full of zombies? And what that world looks like for human beings is one where they are in constant danger. They never get a rest. The people on The Walking Dead are in constant danger. And so some of the characters in the show, Rick Grimes, Daryl Dixon, Maggie, Glenn, Carol, to name a few, they know that they are in constant danger in this world. They've come to know that even ultimately that their ultimate threat is not from walkers, not from zombies. Their ultimate threat is actually from other human beings. Other human beings end up being the real threat on the walking dead. 
But in season five of The Walking Dead, there is a scene where their leader, Rick Grimes, is trying to convince this group of people that they can't live behind the safety of some well-structured walls. This group of people has lived safely in this well-protected area, and Rick Grimes and his group show up, and they're trying to convince them what they have learned outside those walls in the real world. And it's this. You can never let your guard down no matter how safe you feel. You can never let your guard down no matter how safe you feel. So Rick tries to explain to them that it's just a matter of time before zombies or human beings, the real threat, it's just a matter of time before they get inside the well-protected place that they live in. Rick tells them that they have to fight to survive, that this is the way the world is now. And his dialogue in a very moving scene is as follows, and it is very instructive for us. He says this to these people, you still don't get it. None of you do. We, that's my group, his group, we know what needs to be done and we do it. We're the ones who live. You, you just sit and plan and hesitate. You pretend like you know when you don't. You wish things weren't what they are. Well, you want to live? You want this place to stay standing? Your way of doing things is done. Things don't get better because you, you want them to. Starting right now, we have to live in the real world. We have to control who lives here. That's never been more clear to me than it is right now. Your way is gonna destroy this place. It's gonna get people killed. It's already gotten people killed. And I'm not gonna stand by and just let it happen. If you don't fight, you die. Rick Grimes is right. If we don't fight, we die. If we let our guard down, we get eaten alive. So what the church, what disciples of Jesus Christ can learn from the walking dead, what we can learn from a zombie apocalypse is that we are in constant danger, that there is a real threat, a real enemy, Satan, and we must fight. We must fight the good fight of faith, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And he says this in 2 Timothy 4, 7. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. If you don't fight, you die. You'll be devoured by the devil. Not that you'll lose your salvation because we don't believe that here at Grace. What I mean is that if you don't fight, you die. What I mean is you'll get eaten alive, meaning you'll get devoured by the devil. You'll rot and spiritual decay will set in your life if you let your guard down. Even this week, I was just thinking about this and kind of imagining what would it be like if there were zombies out there. So I was just kind of spending some time to, to take this illustration and, and put it to practice and just wondering, like, you know, looking over my shoulder, like, I got to live on edge. I got to keep my guard up. And I'm, I'm sitting in, we pulled up in the, the driveway with Heather in the van, and I was like, what if there were zombies out there? You know, we wouldn't just be sitting here. We'd get out of the van and get in the house as quick as we could. Helps you be on guard when you think like that. 
I'm afraid too many of us don't think enough about the fact that we have a real enemy, Satan. Some Christians do. They see a demon behind every, everything. Their, their car breaks down and it was the transmission demon that came, just came to destroy my car. So some people see demons behind everything. I don't think you should be that far over there. But some of us are all the way over here and we don't even think about the fact that we have a real enemy, Satan, the devil. Too many of us slide into this state of relaxation and rest and we let our guard down and that's when we are most susceptible to a spiritual zombie apocalypse. In this passage today, Peter compares the devil to a lion. But if Peter had a chance to watch an episode of The Walking Dead, he might have said that the devil roams around like a walker, like a zombie seeking someone to devour. Peter might have said that the Christian life was like trying to survive a zombie apocalypse. Peter didn't say that, but I will. The Christian life is like trying to survive a zombie apocalypse. The danger is real. The danger is constant. You have to be alert. You have to be watchful. You cannot let your guard down. You have to be ready because the devil is like a zombie roaming around, seeking someone to bite, seeking someone to devour. And that's essentially what Peter will tell us in the passage today. He will tell us that the greatest battle of your life is continuing to believe the gospel. Christian, the greatest battle of your life is continuing to believe the gospel. The greatest fight of your life is not with your spouse or your children or a neighbor. The greatest fight and greatest battle of your life is to continue to believe the good news of the gospel, to continue to believe the promises of God, to continue to believe and receive God's grace. The greatest fight and battle of your life is to believe the almost unbelievable promises of God. Sometimes they seem too good to be true, don't they? But they are true. And the greatest fight of your life is to say, I will believe. That's our fight. Our fight is a fight to believe, to have faith, because we are a a people of faith, to trust, to stand firm in our faith, as Peter says, that in spite of what we see, in spite of what is happening in our lives, in spite of how incredibly sinful and disobedient we are, God's promises are absolutely reliable. We have to fight to believe the gospel that he loves us, that he forgives us, that we are his children. You will have to fight to believe this. You will have to fight this battle every single day of your life for the rest of your life. And now let me tell you why. Look at 1 Peter chapter five, beginning in verse eight. Hear the word of the Lord. Be sober-minded, Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. This is not the first time that Peter has told his readers to be sober-minded. This is actually the third time. The first time he did it was in chapter 1, verse 14, and then in chapter 4, verse 7, 
So what does Peter mean when he says be sober-minded? What Peter is saying when he says be sober-minded is don't act and live like a drunk person mentally or in your thoughts. Don't be a mental drunk is what he's saying. Drunk people, they, they can't think straight. Their judgment is impaired. They stumble around sometimes like zombies. They don't think straight, but Peter isn't merely telling his audience not to get drunk. He doesn't, what he means is that he doesn't want them to live in a foggy state of mind like a drunk person. Peter wants his readers to avoid living in such a way that God becomes boring, that the things of God become dull, that the gospel becomes bland. He wants them to avoid living in this kind of drowsiness so they don't lose sight of Jesus. Peter doesn't want his readers to drift. He doesn't want them to get drowsy. Peter basically wants his readers to think rightly and to drink deeply of the gospel. And David Mathis actually said something very similar on the Desiring God blog. He said this, Gospel hope guards our minds in the battle swirling around us and lifts our gaze beyond our present confusion to the certainty of victory. The most sober thinkers in the world are those who have drunk most deeply of the gospel. And that's what Peter wants for his readers. He wants them to drink deeply of the gospel, to drink deeply of God's promises, to drink deeply of grace because it will help them to renew their minds and will help them to be able to stand firm in their faith. Like Rick Grimes in The Walking Dead, Peter is passionately declaring that they have to make sure that they don't ever let their guard down. And that's why Peter says that they need to be watchful in verse 8. Be watchful. Be aware. They need to stay focused. And he gives the reason why in verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And because we have an enemy like this, Grace, an enemy that roams with the intent to devour us the way a zombie devours people, because of that, I think what Martin Luther said, he said it best in his commentary when he said this. Here he, Peter, gives us a warning and would open our eyes and it would be well worthy that the text should be written in golden letters. This warning Martin Luther is saying, these letters should be printed with golden letters, these words. But then he goes on to say, here you perceive what this life is and how it is described so that we might well be ever wishing that we were dead. Have you ever wished that? Like, I'm tired of the, the battle. I'm tired of fighting sin. I'm exhausted. I'm weary. I just want to go be with Jesus. Have you ever thought that? I have. Often. Luther says, that's what this life is like. You get weary in the battle. Sometimes you just want to die. I just want to go be with Jesus. I'm done. But then he continues and he says, We are here in the devil's kingdom, just as in case a pilgrim should arrive at an inn or a hotel, if you will, where he knew that all in the house were robbers. If he must enter there, he will yet arm himself in the best way he can devise and will sleep but little. So are we now on earth, where the prince is an evil spirit and has the hearts of men in his power, doing by them as he will. It is a fearful thought if we properly regard it. Verse 8 should be written, printed in golden letters. Verse 8 should be underlined and highlighted in your Bible. 
Why? Because how often do we get relaxed in the fight? How often do we let our guard down? How often do I forget? How often do you forget that we have an enemy who hates our souls? He hates our children. He hates this church. We forget that we have an enemy who, because we love Jesus with all of our hearts, he hates us with all of his guts. And that's why Peter says that we should be sober-minded. We should be watchful because our enemy is real. And he roams like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Maybe you heard about what happened last week in my home state of Oklahoma. Of course, it's spring, so it's tornado season there. No surprise, that's typical. Nothing alarming about that. Okies are used to tornadoes. We, 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 we love seeing the storms. We love looking for them. In fact, when I was dating Heather in college, we went to visit my family, and there was this massive you know, storm and a tornado warning. We're all outside looking, where's the tornado? Can we see it? And the wind and the rain and everything, you know? And Heather's like, you people are crazy. What are you doing? Get inside. And she's this valley girl from L.A. And I'm like, this is awesome. Come on, there might be a tornado. And she's like, I'm going into the closet. (laughs) Well, she married me anyway. In spite of my crazy family, it must have been my good looks that that really pulled her in. (laughs) Okies are used to tornadoes. Don't get me wrong, no. We hate tornadoes. We hate the death and the destruction that they bring. But we're used to them. They're a part of life. But the problem last week was that a tornado hit a wildlife place called Tiger Safari. Tiger Safari was a place like a zoo. It's this place where you could go see these wild exotic animals. And when that tornado hit Tiger Safari last week, suddenly the internet, specifically Twitter, lit up with tweets like this. Here's the first one. Breaking news. Tigers and other wild animals on the loose after tiger safari in Tuttle, Oklahoma was hit by the storm. Do not leave your home. Another tweet. Exotic animals, exotic animal park in Tuttle, Oklahoma hit by tornado. Lions, tigers, and bears are on the loose. Another one. Destroyed by tornado. The tiger safari in Tuttle housed tigers, lions, bobcats, bears, alligators, and Burmese pythons. So besides the tornadoes that they're experiencing, besides the massive flooding that was occurring that night in Tuttle, Oklahoma, residents were suddenly informed that there were tigers, lions, bears, bobcats, alligators, and pythons on the loose. Welcome to Oklahoma. And to think that the state motto of Oklahoma is, Oklahoma is okay. (laughs) Uh, Not that night. Oklahoma was not okay. That night, the state motto became, Oklahoma is OMG, there's a tiger in my yard. Well, it's safe now. All the animals were eventually found. But what would you do in that situation? What would you do if there were tigers, lions, bears, bobcats, alligators, and pythons on the loose? You would stay inside your home and be on the lookout. You would be watchful. You would be sober-minded. You would stay inside your home and be on the lookout. And that's exactly Peter's point here. Be on the lookout. 
Stay awake. Don't let your guard down. Our enemy roams and looks for someone to devour. So we're called to resist him. Not to live in fear. We're not to fear the devil. We are to resist him standing firm in faith because Jesus overcame. That's the hope of the gospel. We don't have to fear Satan. He is a defeated foe. Jesus crushed the head of the devil at the cross. But the devil roams and he roars. And the problem comes when we listen to his roar. The problem comes when we believe what he is roaring about. The problem comes when we quit believing the gospel and we start to believe his roar. And what does Satan typically roar about? It's something along these lines. It's not finished. It's not really finished. I don't care what Jesus said on the cross. It is not finished. You have to be obedient to earn God's love. He's mad at you. God doesn't love you. You let him down again. I can't believe you did that. Didn't you repent of this sin earlier today and you did it again and you call yourself a Christian? You should feel ashamed. You can't run to Jesus now that you've failed him. He doesn't want you to run to him. You're messy. You're sinful. You're dirty. He doesn't want you right now. You're all alone. No one else is going through this right now. God must not love you because all of these things are happening to you in your life. God has abandoned you. It's not fair that you have to go through these trials and this suffering when other Christians have it so easy. Why is God making you suffer like this? Have you ever heard his roar like that? Have you ever stopped and listened to those lies, listened to Satan's roar, and believed them? If you're like me, of course you have. And that's why the greatest battle of your life is continuing to believe the gospel. Our greatest battle is to believe the good news of the gospel. And suffering just intensifies the battle to believe. Suffering intensifies the battle to believe the gospel, which is why Peter mentions suffering in verse 9. Look, he says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter wants his readers, he wants us to know that suffering is a part of the Christian experience. It's the pattern of Jesus' life. Suffering precedes glory. Jesus suffered before he returned to the glory that he enjoyed with his father before time. So Peter doesn't want us to be alarmed by suffering. We will suffer in this life. We will suffer either one, because we're Christians, we'll suffer for our faith, for what we believe, or two, we'll suffer just because we're broken human beings who live in a broken, fallen, sin-sick world. So we will suffer in one way or another. Make no mistake about it, you will suffer in this life either for being a Christian or just simply because you're a Christian, a human being living in a broken, sinful world. But Peter also wants us to know that suffering makes us vulnerable. That's why he connects Satan and suffering here. Don't miss the connection between Satan and suffering here because Peter knows that when we suffer, 
we are vulnerable. Vulnerable to the roar of the devil. Vulnerable to his lies. When we suffer, we are vulnerable to worry. When we suffer, we are vulnerable to doubt. When we suffer, we are vulnerable to fear. When we suffer, we are vulnerable to anger. So Satan loves to tell us that we're alone when we suffer. That's why Peter says here that every disciple all over the world goes through suffering. He tells us that because he knows that when we suffer, we are vulnerable to the lies of Satan. He knows that sometimes we listen to the devil's roar and we believe him. He knows our tendency is not to believe the gospel, but to believe roaring lies like this. Why does God give that guy a break and not you? Why do you have to suffer in this way? Why is God allowing this to happen to you? That guy has the easy life. He never suffers. He has it all together. How come God blesses her and not you? Why does she seem to have it all? Why doesn't she ever suffer or go through hard times? Why does God just make you suffer? And why does he let those people live the easy, carefree life? Why don't they have hard times. Peter reminds his audience that every believer suffers in some way at some time and no one is exempt. And Peter does this because of our tendency to feel sorry for ourselves when we suffer. Peter does this because of our tendency to have a pity party. Peter does this because of our tendency to doubt God's goodness. Peter does this because of our tendency to compare ourselves with others when we suffer. This is something we are all tempted to do when we suffer. We feel sorry for ourselves. We have a pity party. We doubt God's goodness. And then we begin to compare ourselves with others. And pastors are not exempt from this at all. In fact, pastors may be more prone to get discouraged because we see other pastors succeed. We see their churches growing. We see other pastors who have differing gifts from us and we want their gift and their ability to to speak and preach and we want to be like them and therefore we are prone to comparison and that can make us very vulnerable. In fact, not too long ago, I had another pastor tell me that he was jealous of me. He's been going through some very difficult times with some of his staff, lots of conflict, anger, frustration, insubordination, and he hears me talking about how awesome the staff is at Grace, and he told me he was jealous of me because things were so good here because we have such an awesome staff. Listen, we do have an awesome staff here at Grace. I hope you know that. God has blessed this church with a wonderful staff. We get along with each other, and I think some of us actually like each other. (laughs) And we laugh a lot. Oh, we laugh a lot. One of the best things about this staff is that we laugh a lot. We love to laugh. We love to have fun. Our staff meetings consist of a lot of laughter, a lot of rabbit trails that we run down, and somebody has to pull us back in. That's a sign of a very healthy church staff. God has blessed Grace with an incredible 
staff and I tell people all the time that I just stepped into a big pile of God's goodness here. I tell people all the time that the leadership at Grace is awesome. Our elders, our deacons, and our staff are the best. I want you to know that and I want you to love on them and to thank God for them. But this fellow pastor, my dear brother in Christ, was struggling because he saw how good and healthy it is here at Grace. But what he does not see is that we still suffer here. We still have issues come up. We have problems. We're sinners here. The staff, full of sinners. We struggle. But his pain and sorrow was so overwhelming that it just felt like to him that it was all perfect here at Grace. And the devil used that to make him doubt God's sovereignty and to make him doubt God's goodness. So this pastor, my friend, like all of us, needs to hear this reminder today. The greatest battle of your life is continuing to believe the gospel. The greatest fight of your life is not with your spouse, your children, a neighbor, or a coworker. The greatest fight and battle of your life is to continue to believe the gospel, to continue to believe the amazing promises of God, to continue to believe and receive God's grace. The greatest fight and battle of your life is to believe the almost unbelievable promises of God. And trust me, sometimes they seem too good to be true for me. And my fight is to believe it and say they are true. That's our fight. Our fight is to believe, to have faith, because we're people of faith. Stand firm in our faith that in spite of what we see, in spite of what is happening in our lives, God's word is true. In spite of what is going on in our lives, in spite of how incredibly sinful and disobedient we are, and we are, God's promises are absolutely reliable. We have to fight to believe the gospel that he loves us that he forgives us and that we are his children. You will have to fight to believe this. You will have to fight this battle every single day for the rest of your life. So we have to resist listening to the roar of our adversary, the devil. We have to ignore his roar. Because it's not just a simple temptation that he comes to us with. We have to understand that Satan's plan is to destroy us. He is out to destroy us, to devour us, to eat us alive like a zombie. Sin wants to devour you. John Owen said it best about how sin and temptation work. He says this, sin always, sin aims always at the utmost Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, if it has its own way, it will go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism if allowed to develop. Every rise of lust, if it has its way, reaches the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. The deceitfulness of sin is seen in that it is modest in its first proposals. But when it prevails, it hardens men's heart and brings them to ruin. That's how sin works 
Every thought, little glance, would lead to full-blown adultery if it could. Every doubt, every, every time you doubt God and wonder are the promises of God true, if sin had its way, it would lead to atheism. It would lead to you to reject God. That's how sin works. But it comes and it's very modest in its proposal. Just, just doubt. Just, just look again for a second time. Just, just lust. It comes very modestly, but its aim, its goal is to go as far as it can until it destroys you and hardens your heart. That's how sin works. That's how our adversary, the devil, works. He wants to ruin us. He wants to ruin me. He wants to ruin you. Satan's goal is not just to get you to disbelief. If he could have his way, Unbelief would lead to atheism. Unclean thoughts would lead to full-blown adultery. This is why we must stand firm in the faith and resist him. This is why we must cling to the promises of God and resist him. This is why we must ignore his roar. We must resist him because he wants to ruin us. This is why we must fight to do whatever it takes to believe all that God is for us in his son Jesus. The devil will not relent. But the good news of the gospel is, but neither will our God. The devil will not relent, but neither will God. Look at verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The devil is relentless. He wants to destroy us. He wants to devour us. And that's why we must stay on guard. But even if we fail, even when we fail to believe the gospel, God is faithful. Even If we fail, even when we fail, because we will, even when we fail to believe the gospel, God is faithful. How often I fail to believe the gospel. How often I get shaken by the roar of our adversary. How often I believe his lies. I really do. I believe his lies. I woke up and was like, I kind of agree with what you're saying. I am a sinner. I don't deserve to get up and preach this morning. I was believing his lies this morning, doing battle. This is how the devil usually works in my life. He calls out to me. He entices me. Come on, Benji. It would be good. You'll be satisfied. Sin calls my name. And I give in to the very thing that I hate. And the devil makes promises. And he tells me that sin will be better than Jesus. And I believe him. And I fall for it. And then you know what happens? The Holy Spirit convicts me, starts pulling me back. Come back, son. And I want to go back to Jesus. And as I turn to wait, make my way back to him, as I repent and I turn to Jesus, you know what the devil says to me? Jesus won't take you back. You're dirty. You sinned. You fell for my lies. Do you think Jesus really wants you after you turned your back on him? And so the devil beckons us to go to him 
and we fall for his lies like a lover and he makes promises to us and we believe him and then when we repent and start back to Jesus, the devil stabs us in the back and starts condemning us. But even when that happens, even when I fail to believe, Jesus is faithful. And the gospel promise is right there in verse 10. After we have suffered a little while and even failed at believing the gospel, Jesus himself will personally come and restore us. And who knew this better than Peter? Three times he denied Jesus with cursing. I do not know that man. In fact, the Greek is more, he called curses down and curse that man. I don't even know him. And then a few days after the resurrection, he's fishing and he sees Jesus on the boat and he takes off swimming. And when he gets there, Jesus serves him up a breakfast of fish tacos and he loves him and he restores him. Peter knew what he was talking about. So Peter piles up these words here, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish to show us just how gracious our God is. Jesus is the God of all grace, and he comes to us in his grace to restore us and to strengthen us because our faith is so often weak. Is it not? Our faith is so often weak. So Jesus comes to strengthen us. Our faith is not the point. Jesus is the point. But did you catch the personal pronoun here? Peter says that God himself will come and strengthen and restore us. How wonderful that God doesn't send an angel. I don't want to deal with them right now. They're sinful. They turn their back on me. You go start the business. No, God doesn't send an angel. He comes himself. He wants to be personally involved in restoring us, even when we've just binged on sin, even if we come spiritually smelling like a homeless person, even if the liquor of sin is still on our breath and we're hung over from sin, God himself, Jesus himself, comes to us to hug us, to love us, to strengthen us, and to restore us restore us can you run to him even when you're still hung over a little from sin he wants you he wants you to run to him do not buy the lies of the enemy who says maybe if there's some distance some time between this sin and right now maybe if there's distance Jesus will take you back he wants you back the minute you're sorry the minute you repent do not believe the devil's lies Peter knew this Firsthand, some of you this morning carrying the weight and the guilt of your sin and you think I'm too dirty I can't go to Jesus he'll come to you may he do that this morning that's why Peter ends this section with the worship song he ends it with a doxology he says to him be the dominion forever and ever amen because Jesus himself will restore you He deserves the honor and the glory. And Peter wants these churches to know that even though we have an adversary running around, Jesus rules. Jesus has dominion. He has Satan on a leash. And so this is the perfect way for Peter to end this section. To turn the eyes of these suffering churches back once again to Jesus. The all-powerful God of all grace. 
So Peter ends this section with a doxology, with a, a worship song, if you will, to Jesus. And I think that might be the perfect way for us to end this sermon, with a doxology, with a worship song. Let's end this sermon with the words that we are going to sing in a moment, words that are very similar to Peter's words. Seated above, enthroned in the Father's love, destined to die, poured out for all mankind. God's only Son, perfect and spotless one. He never sinned, but suffered as if he did. All authority, every victory is yours. All authority, every victory is yours. Savior, worthy of honor and glory, worthy of all our praise, you overcame. Jesus, awesome in power forever, awesome in great is your name, you overcame. That's Jesus. That's our God, the God of all grace, the God who restores the God who forgives sinners like us. So ignore the devil's roar and embrace the God of all grace. Ignore the devil's roar this morning and embrace the God of all grace. Or maybe we should say it this way. Let the God of grace embrace you today. Let him love on you. All you got to do is run and say, here I am. Let's pray. All glory to your son, Father. All glory to Jesus, because he overcame. He never sinned, but suffered as if he did. He always resisted the devil. We don't. We give in. So all glory to the only one who overcame. Father, may we not leave here today thinking about our enemy the most. May we leave here today thinking about your son. Direct our hearts and minds to him now to sing to him, the only one who is worthy. Strengthen us because we are weak. We believe our adversaries lies all the time. Would you strengthen us to believe the good news of the gospel? And for those of us here today who feel dirty and unclean and think there's no way we can come to you, there's no way you would have us, would you run to them now and embrace them and may they rest in your arms. In Jesus' name, amen.